And we're back. This is Model Behavior. I am Michael G. Gable, and this is my podcast. Welcome to it. If you're here for the first time, glad to have you. And if you're a returning listener, you may have noticed that there was no music up top. That Arcade Fire song that I've been stealing has gone by the wayside because now Model Behavior has its own proprietary intro music thanks to today's guest, Julia Newman. We sat down last week, recorded a podcast, and then talked about what we wanted out of um, intro music for this podcast. And, and Julia really forced me to narrow down my thoughts on this podcast because Julia is a composer. She does film scoring and she actually scored a short film that I made called Van Life. And she did an amazing job on that. I am so thankful to her and I'm incredibly thankful to her for creating the music for this podcast now. Um, so I hope everyone's had a happy holidays, that their new year's off to a good start. We are back from the hiatus. We'll be back to recording and releasing an episode every week, every Thursday. So please subscribe and look forward to that. But otherwise, this episode is going to speak for itself, so I want to get straight into it. Without further ado, Julia Newman. Yeah, but I try to release once a week, so you'll be the first one after the new year, 2020. I'm ready to disappoint. Keep that microphone right up to your face. <laughs> hey, Julia. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm good. I'm glad to be here. This is the first time I'm doing something like this. So Yeah, thank you for allowing me into your home to record. Hopefully uh, my cat doesn't fuck anything up. I feel like every episode we have some animal interacting with yeah. uh, a guest or the microphone. As she's well, now we, have, now we have two, so it's bound to be interesting. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like I said, it's just a conversation. We're just, but this is going to be a very meta episode because hopefully we'll have just played the music we create for this episode and this podcast in general before our conversation. So we're like <laughs> in a time warp right now. So no pressure. You know, I think it's funny. I think when I'm talking about music abstractly and my process, I'm much more comfortable doing it because I'm shrouded in anonymity. Yeah. Nobody knows what it sounds like. And so I feel like it gives me... An advantage in the sense that it's less likely that people will know I'm full of shit well, without, without having any idea yeah. what it is that I actually do. Well, I was driving over here. I was thinking it's funny to put you to hear your words because you're not. I mean, you've done some songwriting, but mostly you're a composer. Yeah. In the past couple of years, um, I've shifted into film scoring, Yeah, um, which was a kind of a drastic change. Um, I started off since I was super young. Um writing songs um and it was very much just an outlet and you know i think it it got to a point towards the end of my undergrad where i realized how much i valued songwriting as an outlet Mm -hmm. but But it's a but it's not it wasn't a viable career option for me i mean i have done it professionally in terms of i mean once (laughs) Um, one time one time but (laughs) That's enough. You've got one song out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, for but that was actually for the end of an end title of a of a documentary. Um, so yeah, in the past couple of years, it it's it switched to film scoring. Yeah. Well, so let's you're you're covering a lot of bases. We'll slow down. The first question. There's one question of this podcast, uh, and that's just what were you up to when you were seven years old? What was I up to when I was seven years old? It sounds like there may have been some songwriting going on. Um. I wrote my, well, I wrote my first musical when I was 12. Okay. So that's, that's kind of, I think I wrote. 
That's impressive. <laughs> <laughs> it was a 20-page musical called Solid Love with 10 original songs. Uh-huh. It was about a peasant boy who falls in love with a princess. Classic story. Classic. It was a, you know, a commentary on on classism and hierarchy, which wow. A very interesting commentary to have as a 12-year-old. Brow, yeah. No, I was I was totally full of shit. Um when I was 7, I don't, you know, it's funny. I, I don't think I look back and associate any kind of big moments in my life around the age of 7. Um I was always a creative kid. I mean, yeah. you know, I had I didn't quite know how to engage with people at a young age. I remember feeling really isolated and mm-hmm. I had my cousin who was five weeks older than me and we were really project oriented kids. So we loved to do like adaptations of different books and turn them into plays and, yeah. you know, cast um, our little brothers and our other cousins. Um, Are you the only child like me? No, one of three. One of three. Okay. So we had quite the kind of cast of characters yeah. to engage in in that, res- in, in, in that regard. Um, but yeah, I think, I think I was just a kid who was really lost in her own imagination. I Mm -hmm. think that's really what I associate with my early life was kind of this unadulterated imagination and this willingness to just kind of dive in. And I didn't like that to be interrupted. So I was very private with the way I engaged with my imagination. Yeah. I mean, so I know you come from a, like a music family, (laughs) but, uh, to say the least, um, but did, so did your creativity come out in all sort of mediums? Because when I was a kid, I was like trying to create a newspaper for my neighborhood and then making like weird multimedia art and then like starting to do like kid pics on the on the computer, like early graphic design. So I was kind of like just trying everything. Or were you music? No, I actually I mean, I started a band when I was nine called Three Top, um, but I didn't want to make music. We had like the family computer and I was obsessed with writing contracts and sending them home with my (laughs) (laughs) with my friends to their parents to sign them and then organizing them into binders. Okay. Um, I was really obsessed with writing contracts. I have no idea why. So you were like, I'm not going to be a creative. I'm going to be a suit. Well, I just I, I I think there was something that I loved about like organizing and projects. Mm-hmm. So it's like the entire bottom part of my desk, um, like the the cabinets, I had filled with um, different binders of different projects we had organized. My cousin and I decided to embark on a campaign called Save the Animals, in which we had written an accompanying song. And yeah. you know, we used to get those wildlife books where like they oh, send yeah. you all of like the the different like wildlife packages, and you put them in those like big binders. Um, and I was super into marine biology. I mean, it was literally anything that I could get my hands on. I, mm-hmm. I wanted to engage with. I loved playing teacher. I um, would make videos. I remember making this video with my cousin called Spyish Skills Unleashed. And we found these trench coats and, and the family video camera. So any way in which I, I could be expressive, um, mm-hmm. I, I wanted to do that. Whether that was making a card for somebody's birthday or some... I think we tried to make a beach out of paper. I don't even know what that means, but you know, it's like that kid, that just kid making, logic. Just making shit. Anything, yeah. absolutely anything that I could. I mean, I, I was lucky because my parents, I wasn't allowed to have video games. I watched TV. I watched a lot of Nickelodeon, but like watching cartoons, I think inspired me creatively. So I was just making whatever all the time. Like I, that was my, my MO as a kid was just to sit in front of the TV watching Nickelodeon and drawing. So why cartoons? Like what was it about cartoons? Like that I think it was interested? just, that's what kids watch. And like Nickelodeon was a channel where you could put it on in the morning and then like at night you're still watching it. Cause it was just for kids. Right. Was it like cat and dog and like rocket yeah, like power Cat dog and like, uh, Rugrats, Rocco's modern life. Um, and it's funny because like I hit, I watched Nickelodeon too long. Like I watched into high school when I knew I shouldn't be watching it. Totally. And now I can't do animation. Like I can't go see animated movies. I can't watch animated series because I think I like 
my my like like mid puberty brain was like cartoons aren't cool and i just like put this like gate down oh interesting because i was yeah. wondering if it was because you know you was so you're there's there's a kind of associated nostalgia with that time and it's like to to engage with kind of new forms of animation somehow yeah. interferes with kind of our romantic notions of of who we used to be and what we used to love Ooh. well that brings up i mean like then <laughs> oh who's running this podcast um i don't know because like i love drawing and obviously i'm not i mean i create art but i'm not like a cartoonist or a visual artist in the standard sense of the word but maybe there is a little like repression of that early love of drawing that's tied into cartoons and yeah i mean i, I find that with me in like fantasy yeah you know it's like i um i think there's a there's trouble that i have like engaging with kind of <laughs> Uh, new expressions or movies that are that are fantasy based because it was such a huge part of my childhood yeah um that i don't want anything to interfere with my memory of those things you just keep it there it's like for your yeah i mean even even reading new fantasy books i was talking to um a friend of mine's cousin and and you know i was talking he's another big kind of fantasy freak and i was saying you know i have trouble kind of entering into adult fantasy because Mm -hmm. i you know i i have a tendency to to simply go backwards and reread these these old fantasy books from when i was growing up because it's it just it reminds me of a very kind of specific period in my life and and you know this old this this form of escapism that i so relished in as a child yeah um that i kind of want to go back there like i'm i'm the freak who's you know 25 years old and it's like i'll still listen to the harry potter audiobooks yeah you know because those are special to you and that's yeah because it's not just the story itself but i think the safety that i associate it with you know when life was kind of simpler and you just kind of really are diving fully into your own imagination yeah i'm trying to process this i'm trying to think of if it's a good idea to kind of leave that where it is in your childhood where it's special and precious and then not engage with it in adulthood or if it's like something we're putting off like but like it seems like the projects you work on now are very grounded documentaries you know i did a short film about living the van life and you did the score for that and it's all very real world things films bits i guess you know it's interesting i remember there was um th- there's this linguist who works at columbia university this guy john mcwarder He's kind of a controversial figure in his own right, but you know, he had this lecture that he was giving on uh, modern language um, mm-hmm. as expressed mainly through texting, and this Whoa. childlike, um, these childlike elements to the way in which we we engage. And I think you know the the example that he brought up was you know when you see the the memes of the Shiba Inu and it's like oh so small yeah, yeah. Um, and you know the kind of question that was being posed was that is it is it ruining language? And he said actually you know. Um, you know, his theory was that it, it, it in fact wasn't. It was just a way for, um, you know, this generation of coping with the anxieties that we're presented with. Yeah. Um, and to go back to that childlike language um, offers its own kind of form of escapism or maybe escapism is the wrong word, but a sense of safety, mm-hmm. um, which I which I think is is, is an interesting thing. So, you know, I, th- I think in a lot of ways I go back to fantasy because it feels safe yeah and i feel like sometimes i feel so entrenched in the chaos of the world how do i cope with that mm-hmm. um you know you could 100 percent argue that, that <laughs> it's not a dangerous coping mechanism but but the effectiveness of it i would you know i would take an argument against well perhaps. there are worse coping mechanisms than reading harry potter over and over again well <laughs> i i i i definitely know that i know about that too but i'm curious so you were fantasy nerd as a kid you were big into creativity you sort of 
organized, you like the organizational aspect of like project building and project management almost. And it seems like that kind of fits into what a composer does. You're managing this giant project. And I was just surfing with my buddy and he, I was like, I'm going to go meet with this composer. And she, he was like, so does a composer write the parts for like every instrument? And I was like, yeah, dude, like they're a composer. So it actually depends in film music. So there's this there's this job called, you know, an orchestrator. And, and yeah. what they'll do is they'll kind of take a sketch that a composer creates. Okay. And then they'll kind of map it out and large scale. Out, yeah. at, at this point in my career, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of still a no one. Um, so, you know, we do... We do all of that stuff. We do all of that stuff on our own. Um, but I, I think you're definitely right. My cousin and I, who I, you know, embarked on all of these projects with, we often joke with one another that all of the tools that allow us to be successful, or at least a solid handful of them, are we all learn doing, we both learn doing those projects. Yeah. Um, and, and I think you do see... I mean, you know I'm at uh, USC right now mm -hmm. in the screen scoring program you do really see how those management skills, those leadership skills, um, those organizational skills really do come in handy. Um, you know, as you move forward or as I move forward in, in my career and there are larger opportunities that, that I have in front of me, um, I find those things to be invaluable. Yeah. I mean, when you look at something like a film score, it seems like this impossible task to create something so moving and beautiful and evoking of the proper emotions that the director needs and the, you know, the actors need. But it's about breaking it down into like those little actionable steps. Like, where do I start? What's, totally. you know, there's this Will Smith quote. It's like, you don't set out to build a wall. You set out to lay a brick as perfectly as you can. And you keep doing that over and over again. And you step back and you say, oh, I have a wall. So being able to break something down like a film score into actionable steps will allow you to to manage the like scale of it, you know? Yeah. I think there's an element of it that still feels mysterious to me. You know, it's like, I think about, you know, the, the project that we worked on together and mm -hmm. you know, it's like you, you think back and I'm like, well, I have no idea how I came up with those ideas. Right. Um, but I think it really is in regards to film scoring, the ability to navigate between looking at a project in a macro sense and a micro sense, mm -hmm. right? Because you still need, to have a sense of a dramatic through line, right? If I look at every single cue as something that exists independently from the others, then I'm losing the through line, right? Yeah. So it's not just a matter of servicing the drama in one moment. Um, it's a matter of helping push forward the dramatic arc. Yeah, right? I mean, it's the same thing in writing as like a, you know, a narrative spine. You have to have some totally. sort of thesis that you're working towards. And if this scene or this bit of dialogue doesn't, somehow further that idea cut it you know which you have your room to play and be um you have purple pros and you know be flowery but you need to be lean as well and efficient in driving towards that goal totally i mean i think that's why it's sometimes fun you know we did this again on your project too where it's like you know at the at the beginning you can kind of just play around with a couple of different ideas where yeah. you're not yet locked into a certain vibe or a certain mood but you kind of get to put a couple of different things over a scene and ask yourself, how does this make me feel? Yeah. You know, does this elevate it? Um, does it detract from it? Does it, does it distract from the scene? Yeah. Um, and, and it's a really interesting part of the process to engage with too, because you start to realize the ways in which music actually affects a scene yeah. and it's astronomical. Um, but ironically, you know, I think hopefully when, you know, as an, you're an audience member and you're listening to a score, 
you want to experience the score, but you don't mm-hmm. necessarily want to be listening to it. No, it's almost, it's like that. It, it needs to be almost transparent, you know, like you're being affected by it, but you're not noticing it because once you kind of peel back and realize, like, like, you know, in a World War One movie, there's no music going on in a battle, but in a movie, there's a there's music, and it it's it's this very transparent sort of layer of emotion that you're not conscious of, but is seeping into you through totally. osmosis. And you did that. I mean, when we worked on Van Life, I encourage everyone to go find the Vimeo link for the Van Life uh, short film I made, just to, to listen to it because, you know, Julia and I talked for a long time about like what I was trying to evoke and this idea of you know, following the status quo, but then breaking out and having this wander lusty romantic idea of what van life is and breaking out on your own. And you accomplished it. Like, I don't feel like I deserve the music you created for that. You know, it's so funny. I mean, you, cause I know that that was kind of your directorial debut. Yeah. First time debut. I ever directed anything. Um, and what I so valued and respected about the way in which you approached the process was that you had the confidence and the the kind of courage to say, I don't know what I want. Yeah. And that's, I, I think, actually a really rare thing sometimes um, in creative fields, right? It's such a vulnerable process that sometimes it's hard to admit that we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but in doing so, that allowed me to say, okay, now we can really explore. I don't know if you remember, but I put together a couple of sample cues for you. Yep. And, um, and you said, well, what would it mean for us to kind of combine these two things? And so I took kind of some of the groove elements of, mm-hmm. of one of the samples that I did for you and combined it with um, um, another kind of more melodically oriented, yeah. um, harmonically oriented um, sample cue. And I think it's so fun when you get to work with a director um, who's open-minded and curious and has an idea about the direction that they want to go in, mm-hmm. but they value what it is that you offer as a composer. Yeah, I mean, I, I've i only directed that one little short film and directing, as far as I know, is about making decisions. Like you have to have an answer for everyone's question and it's about tone management. What is the tone of this piece? And everything you do, whether it's the cinematography or the dialogue or the score or the, you know, the source music you pull, which we, we had a little bit of a, um, source music for that film as well. It's all about the tone. And that's all I could tell you was the tone I was going for. And I had to trust that you had the skills that I didn't have to create that musically. And it worked out, I think. (laughs) I I hope so. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting, I think it's such an interesting kind of collaborations between, um, between directors and composers. And it's about kind of, I think, finding and landing on that that sense of language that describes the mood, that describes the tone. you know, and I think I think we were lucky in the sense that we were able to kind of connect on the level of of tone and what it was that you were looking for. You know, I think sometimes it's you're re- I'm really kind of searching from a director to get an idea yeah. of the direction, dramatically speaking, right that they want to go in. Yeah, and it forced me. You really like you forced me to think about my intention emotionally of the piece because you're like give me a word that defines the tone you're going for. Like what, and I, the way I had to think about it is like, what do I want the audience, you know, there's no theater, but like after they watch this on their computer, what do I want them to close their laptop and feel? And mine was this traveling wanderlust romance. And I don't remember what word we settled on, but there were, you, you had me like very specifically give you, I don't know if it was a noun or a verb, but like you wanted like a word. Yeah. And then we settled on that and it, it forced me to really, condense my thinking about this film in general 
because you can't just make a like a little buddy film about two guys in a van that has no heart. It's got to have some sort of driving force if you really want to create something, I don't know, special. And not to say that this film is that special, but it made me think about it in a way that I hadn't been forced to before. Yeah, I mean, I think... I think that's something that I picked up from my dad yeah. where, you know, not even necessarily in regards to, to music, but I think just in life, you know, he has this habit of taking these broad ideas and condensing them into a word or into a phrase. Yeah. And um, that's something that I think I engage with all the time because I mean, that's when you're dealing with a film, whether it's a feature length, whether, um, you know, it's a documentary or a short film, what you do want to do to some extent is kind of take these broad ideas and make it into something manageable so you can lay that brick. Yeah, exactly. Right? And you can lay that brick um, in a way that's 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 effective and that, that builds a strong foundation, right? That's in line with that word or that thesis, that's fine. Right. The reason I ask so many questions as a composer is because I want to make sure I understand, yeah. right? And that's not to say that, that you know, I'm going to nail it every single time, but it gets me closer, right? And if And if I you know, arrive at some sort of kind of condensed conclusion about what it is that a moment in a film means or what the film itself means and it's and it's wrong, you know, maintaining that that flexibility to still mold what it is that we're working with into something that, you know, you as the director want and that services the film. Well, that also comes down to how how confident the director is in what they're trying to accomplish because you know a lot of directors they didn't write the script they've been attached to it they have these actors attached producers attached there's a lot of different ideas a lot of cooks in the kitchen so to speak so if you have a director that doesn't know what they want it's got to be more difficult for you to narrow that idea down right it it is but i think it's also a part of my job to recognize the vulnerable position of a director yeah. right so my question to myself is always how can I work in service of my director? Yeah. Right. Both musically and also psychologically. Um, you know, for composers, if a, if a movie bombs, nobody's looking at the composer for the most part and saying, right. well, you fucked up. You know, that's your fault. Um, it's really the director whose ass is on the line. Um, you know, and I think that taps into the role that psychology plays mm -hmm. um, in this industry. And it, and it plays a pretty huge role. I think, you know, part of the reason that it's like I try and develop a, you know, slew of sample cues when I'm entering into a relationship with a director is to kind of demonstrate to them that it's like we are flexible, that you're you're yeah. allowed to hate something, right? I want a director to feel like they have the ability to not like an idea as opposed to coming in as the composer and saying, well, I've written this. Well, you better like it. Yeah, and that's something you were you were very gracious with me about is that I came in and I, you know, I had the courage to say, like, I don't know anything about composition. I know that the score is really important. I know sound is really important in films, especially low-budget ones. So I'm willing to invest in this. But you never made me feel, like, stupid or, like, you're like, I, I got it. I know what you're trying to say. You know, you never pushed me aside. You were very um, open with the process. I think because at, at the end of the day, I so love the collaborative process. Yeah. Right. I think I think my brain is hungry to engage with people. I mean, I think there's something really intimidating to me about simply sitting down and, you know, writing a symphony. Right. Because then it's just my ideas. And, and mm -hmm. what does that mean? And, and who am I? And how is my identity imbued within within that piece of music? I think I love reacting to something. Right. Mm -hmm. It gives me a sense of directionality, um, both in regards to identity and also musically. Yeah, well, it's that idea, like, it's something that's, it's not just about you, it's someone else's project, it's someone else's vision, and you get to 
I think it's Ryan Holiday talks about it's some Latin virtue, but it's like be a blank canvas for others to paint on, be in service of someone else to like they can have their best create their best creation. That's definitely I think the philosophy that I've taken on probably in the past two years, yeah. right? Because when I'm driving the car, I'm screwed. Yeah, right. Scary. Because it's like all I there is that part of me that's a perfectionist and and is a control freak, right? And so I'm constantly trying to shift my perspective to how can I be of service? Yeah. Right. And that's, I think about that in kind of an all encompassing way in regards to my career. I mean, in my life as well, 100%, mm -hmm. but how can I be of service to this project? Yeah. Right. And I, and it's, and it's hard cause I put a lot of pressure on myself. Um, you know, I don't want to let people down, you know, there's definitely the element of ego that wants to be impressive, right. Sure. That wants to get accolades and feel the validation, um, you know, from my peers, but at the end of the day, you know, does it, it, did the project itself get what it was that it was asking for? Yeah. Um, and that's, yeah, I, I, I take that really seriously. Yeah. I mean, I keep going back to the idea of transparency where it's like, if you walk out of a movie saying that the music sucked, like that, you, that should never happen. You should walk out of a movie being like, I don't, it was good. I don't know why I liked it. Like, it should be transparent. There's this book called The Invisible or Invisibles. It's like about the unsung heroes of the workplace. I've talked about it before on this podcast. And it's all about how like there are people beneath the surface of like what you see. You know, the Rolling Stones have these guitar techs who make sure that Keith Richards' guitars are always in tune. And if he does his job, you don't notice. And that's a good thing. Totally. So he's not getting like pats on the back and, a, you know, 50,000 people applauding him every night. But he's doing his job and he's doing it in service of the greater purpose of the show well i think this is like this brings us to a really interesting kind of point about uh, having a sense of purpose mm -hmm. you know i think there was a long period of my life where it's like i didn't feel useful yeah um and i think when i'm working in a collaborative environment you know in in, in my case and in, in our case in entertainment um being of service gives me a sense of purpose yeah you know i think i think part of the reason that composition and specifically film music interests me is because there's an element of invisibility that goes along with it mm -hmm. i think i'm i've surprised myself over the years because you know i used to be a musical theater kid I, I love to be on stage i'm pretty loud um arguably <laughs> but you don't obnoxious. have an instagram I don't have an Instagram. I mean, I guess technically I do, but it's it's kind of hidden and we won't give and it away. I, yeah, I, <laughs> I I I I really appreciate my my anonymity. Yeah, um, and I and I like that. I like the idea that that I can be a part of something big and exciting, but also kind of sit sit beneath the surface um, yeah. and contribute to something without saying here I am, world. That I think that that makes me feel fundamentally too too vulnerable. Yeah. I mean, I get that completely. I like my privacy. I mean, I like my anonymity. I was an only child. I'm very, I don't like being interrupted. I like, I'm very particular and, you know, not to say I'm like on the cusp of becoming some famous celebrity, but like, I don't, that doesn't appeal to me, even if it was offered to me. It's an, it's an interesting thing, the concept of, of anonymity. And I, and I think about it a lot. And I actually think that it's a really, um, you know, important conversation to be had, um, you know, what does it mean? Who am I when I put myself out on social media versus who am I yeah. as, a, as a human being? And I think that's kind of why I got rid of social media was that I felt like there was this constant push and pull between who it was that I wanted other people to perceive me as mm. versus who I was. Yeah. And I felt perpetually dissatisfied with both because I think, you know, it's like we, we inevitably grow up and develop as human beings. Right. Right. 
and therefore our social media to some extent does as well mm -hmm. right but it's always going to lag slightly behind or so i would assume um uh, it it's going to lag behind who how we develop or the rate of development um that we're going on you know as as, as human beings um and i just feel like sometimes i'm such a fucking idiot that I don't that I don't want to. I mean, it's a it's a pride thing in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, I can be such an idiot in my own life. Yeah, that I don't I don't want to. I don't I don't want to put that I don't want to put that online. Was well, it that you don't trust yourself to put out your authentic self, or you don't you don't want people to see the bloopers? I don't. Well, I don't know. I don't know if I have the capacity to be authentic online. Yeah. I, I mean, I work with that because social media is sort of part of my job, and that like maintaining a portfolio on my Instagram is important for some clients to look at and to for booking jobs but i try really hard to like have a balanced it's not just me with my shirt off it's you know me fishing and me surfing and me with my shirt off because sometimes my shirt's off and <laughs> um but i also try to like have some of my like little ironic witty comments and i, I don't know if i'm doing a great job of it but it is something that i think a lot of people struggle with because the sheer fact that everyone's instagram profile is their highlight reel whereas you're comparing that with your blooper reel right but don't you think though that there's still couldn't you make the argument that there's like the commo commodification of authenticity right where it's now it's it's sort of a business move to say okay i'm gonna post a, 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 a picture of myself on instagram with no makeup no on. makeup yeah right and and then i question is that is that the kind of facade of authenticity or is it genuine authenticity and to be honest with you i don't think i'm qualified to make an assumption about the intentions of another human being and no, why not. it is that why it is that they're doing that but i but i think about that a lot you know how it is that kind of everything to a certain extent has become commodified i think even relationships you know like mm. um i'm in a in a serious r relationship and you know when i was younger the idea of posting photos of me and my boyfriend online it just seemed like yes like i want yeah, people to know validation. yeah you know when i was like a you know an idiot 18 year old and now I just think I don't want I don't want anyone to know. I mean, you see this on YouTube with with families. You right. see it with you know couples traveling. Um, we work out together. You know, oh, here's yeah. us on our keto diet. And I mean, I I say all this you know with some degree of ignorance because again, like I said, I'm I'm not on social media. I don't know, but I think it's it's so interesting that right now you can commodify authenticity. You can commodify the family. You can commodify relationships. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I get really lost in a lot of those things. I don't think that I can trust myself to be on social media because I, I feel like I'm in a labyrinth of my own thoughts. I don't yeah. understand what's real and what's not, you know? I mean, I think that's a huge problem. The fact that you're just aware that you're like, I, I don't know. I don't want to dip my toes in those waters because it just seems sketchy to me. But like, I think so many kids, you know, you're 25, my sister's 19 and then on down the line, these kids, like they grew up on social media. So it's not like a, it's not a question. Like you have to be on social media to be a social person. Right. And they're maybe not, maybe they're better at managing it because it's just part of their life, but they don't have that choice to make necessarily that you do to, you know, stay away from it. And I think that yeah. like everyone's depressed. Everyone's like, you know, constantly analysis by per, or, paralysis by analysis comparing and contrasting and it's just a lot to handle well there's you know i think um you know jonathan Haidt talks about this he's a um if i talked to you about him Probably. he's this he's a he's a professor at nyu um in the business school and i think hope i don't get this wrong he's a moral psychologist and he mm. came out with um you know the book the coddling of the american mind and oh, yeah. you know talks a lot about you know the role that social media plays specifically for young teenage girls and you know kind of suicide rates skyrocketing yeah. um 
you know, for for both, you know, young young boys and girls, but specifically for young women. Yeah. It's a dangerous territory. You know, I mean, to be honest with you, if I was good at social media, if I knew how to rake in the likes, there's no doubt that I would do it. I mean, I, I think it is so addicting. And I think you see this generation of kids who yeah. know how to work it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's pretty obvious how to rake in the likes. I mean, as a girl, <laughs> is it? I don't know. Like, I, I see a lot of girls out there who are raking in likes and it's usually featuring two parts of their body, you know? Their butt and their titties. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe maybe if I got a bigger butt, I'll consider doing Instagram. That's the path It'll be go the, down. <laughs> the abandonment of my, of my, my life philosophy. Um, no, it's it's a... It's an interesting thing to consider, though. I mean, the, the role that social media plays in, in our lives. Because, I mean, I think that there's an element for me that does feel slightly disconnected. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love memes. So, you know, yeah. sometimes my, my... Yeah, I mean, I think... I mean, talk about, talk about large ideas that are condensed. I think memes are the kind of perfect, perfect oh. demonstration of that or manifestation of that. I don't know who's making all these memes, but, like, some of the best humorists that have ever existed are on the internet, and they're just killing it right now. Like, there are, like, these, like... You know, you can see those little snippets of like uh, chat room conversations where it's just like, they're so fucking funny that I can't like, there's, there's no way they happened organically. I don't know if someone's photoshopping them, but they, they tickle me. I like them. <laughs> well, I think there's something that's so entertaining and, and that really, um, you know, kind of pulls you in when you have this large idea that is previously not been articulated as eloquently or as effectively. And there it is perfectly in front of yeah. you. I think that there's something really satisfying about that, right? Because you take something that was previously kind of amorphic, mm-hmm. amorphic, amorphous, um, Am- amorphous. You had wow. me at amorphic. I, <laughs> I, was, a- I was on board. It's amorphous. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and you make it suddenly more tangible and more concrete, right? Something that you're then able to engage in and, and, and discuss about. What's well, that whittling down of an idea into some an image and a few words, right? And that's you know all you really need at the end of the day. Well, I think that's part of of what understanding life is, mm. right? There are these large ideas, um, and and what does it mean to be able to boil them down to something, not for the purpose of kind of desecrating the core of of the meaning or or abandoning the nuance, but for the purpose of understanding, right? Yeah. So that because. You know, I mean, it kind of comes down to this this question about, you know, meta narratives and generalizations, right? Which I think to some extent is a, a is a necessary part of organizing the world. Yeah. You're a very smart lady. Um, <laughs> no. Let's uh, let's start whittling down this podcast. I know you have some thoughts about the podcast and the music we're going to create. So let's see if we can do the same kind of thing and apply the same sort of logic and thinking to what I'm trying to do here and what we're trying to create. Well, all right, now I'm screwed. All right, so let's go. <laughs> you, had said, you had said you had some questions, so why don't you, why don't you take the lead here for a sec? Well, it's interesting. You know, I mean, it's your podcast is called Model Behavior, and I was thinking about, you know, talking about tone, talking about yeah. what it is that, you know, you want to get across, right? And here, you know, I think when you do music for podcasts, which I haven't done previously, um, but it reminds me to some extent structurally to kind of how you would approach a jingle, perhaps. Mm-hmm. I haven't, that's a new thought, so... I think I, I would be open to criticism of that thought, but right. You have a short amount of time to express an idea and to yeah. set a tone. Right. Yeah. And your podcast, it strikes me is really open-ended, you mm. know, like I'm, I'm like a, I love, um, there's this podcast crime junkie that I'm obsessed with. Yeah. Everyone loves crime. Podcasts. <laughs> no, I it's start a, <laughs> There's a, you know, the, the biggest demographic that, that listens to them is apparently young women. I know. Which, I I've thought a lot about that, but well, that's for a separate conversation. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's like, okay, that I think as a bit more kind of an obvious 
an obvious tone was genre almost right you can it's it's more i don't know i just think it's it's more it's more obvious right but Mm -hmm. your podcast is model behavior right and you obviously are a a great model but you want to kind of dive into also what does it mean to live and behave in the world how is it that we survive as human as human beings um and there's an ambiguity to that Mm -hmm. um you know, I think from the podcast that I've listened to, what I, I appreciate is that it doesn't take itself too seriously, right? It's kind of no. two people sitting down and, and having a conversation, right? So, um, it's really just me being curious about people, about how that's why I always start with the question, you know, what were you doing when you're seven years old? It's about, you know, everything you need in your life is pretty much set up for you by the time you're seven. And if you can, if you can get back to those roots, like, you know, for you, it was music, for me, it's being creative and, um, some element of vanity and, you know, but also trying to live a good life. And if you can get back to that, that purity of when you were seven, like then you're probably on a good path. And the people I talk to are people I think are somewhere along that path. And I'm just curious how they navigated it, how they got to where they are, how they're headed to where they're going and how I can maybe adopt some of the principles they've used in their life in my own way. So it's a very selfish podcast. It's really just for me. Like I want to talk to people and I'm lucky that some people like to listen to those conversations. Totally. It reminds me, you know, that reminds me, there's this poem by William Wordsworth called, um, oh God, I'm going to butcher this, um, Ode to Intimations of Immortality, Recollections of Early Childhood. Mm. And it talks about how, I wrote a paper in it, I think when I was a junior. Um, and it talks about how we're all born with like in God's light. And the older you get, the more you lose the light. But yeah. as you approach death, the light returns. Yeah. And it sort of reminds me of kind of what it is you're talking about, right? How do we navigate through the kind of darkness? How do we navigate through the dimming of the light right. and kind of return to it in in some capacity? Um, but, you know, now it, it almost sounds like I'm over-intellectualizing. And I, no, and I, I think... Mean, that's like, that's, I, I'm not a Wordsworth poem, but it's, <laughs> it's close. I'll take it. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, I think... I don't know. I mean, it, part of me thinks like musically speaking, just kind of engaging with with a sense of kind of more of a kind of a laid back groove kind of setting a kind of setting a mood as opposed to making a dramatic statement right which you would do with with a with a crime podcast right you're making a dramatic statement about the type of of material that that you're going to hear right and obviously that can be expressed or manifest itself in in a multitude or a myriad of different ways um but I think I think overall, you know, for a podcast like this, you just don't want the music to try so hard. No, it doesn't need to try so hard. And like, so right now, the music I'm stealing is Arcade Fire Sprawl 2. And I chose it based on the lyrics because I'm not musically intelligent enough to to get the emotion through just the, the melody. I have to listen to the words and say, like, what are you saying to me? And that song's all about this sort of dichotomy about the life you want to live and the life you're living, you know, sort of the, un, the unlived life within you. Um, and then the other reference songs I have for you are like Cut Copies, Take Me Over, which is the same kind of song, right. same kind of groove. And then Talking Heads, Once in a Lifetime, which is it's all those three songs have a very similar kind of funky, aspirational sort of tone. But they're about that dichotomy of living the life you want versus the life you're living. And maybe that's what this podcast is about. I don't know. But that's what I gravitate towards. You know, it's funny. This is something that I've, I've thought a lot about. Um, you know that two years ago I got sober mm. and um, I think one of the biggest challenges for me was competing with the fantasy version of myself, mm. um, competing with my own sense of potential 
And I felt like I had grown up and everyone would say, oh, you know, you have so much potential. Da, 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 da. And it really haunted me because yeah. I felt like for so many years I had abandoned my own development. I had purposefully self-sabotaged mm. because that was how I, 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 I saw self-sabotage as a mode of survival. Well, yeah, it gives you some emotional distance from your potential because it's like, well, I can't be living up to it because I'm too busy destroying it. Right. My, my dad used to have this line that he would say to me. He said, you're so competitive, you refuse to compete. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's that's how I felt a lot of the time. And I think, you know, going back to what we we're talking about, you know, with social media and depression and anxiety um, and all and all of this stuff. Um, you know, I think one of the most humbling moments of my life was, you know, realizing, wait, I'm 23 years old and I have trouble getting out of bed. Mm. I'm 23 years old and I have trouble feeding myself and showering consistently. And because you were partying and yeah i mean i i had just hit the self-destruct button i mean i think it it devolved out of partying and it was like me on a couch just wanting to die mm. you know I, my my line that i used to say was i feel guilty for existing you know i felt like such a waste of space um you, you know and it wasn't in service of anything That's, was it right exactly right yeah. it go it goes back to that 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 concept of purpose yeah um and you know, I had this idea about who it was that I could be. And I remember thinking to myself, well, you know, okay, all I need to do is practice my piano every day and become this incredible pianist. And that will take away my feelings of inadequacy, right? Uh If I can demonstrate outwardly some sort of skill um, that I have the potential of commodifying, that will give me a sense of of place Mm -hmm. in the world. And realizing that I couldn't start there, that I had destroyed myself to such a degree that I had to be proud of myself for getting out of bed, um, making my bed and, you know, hitting a meeting. Mm-hmm. And I think I think what I've had to do in order to move forward in my life is to abandon fantasy and to abandon expectation. Was the fantasy this version of you that could be successful and self-sabotaging simultaneously because there's this romantic idea of like the tortured artist who's an alcoholic and like Hemingway wrote his best books when he was drunk which I'm pretty sure is a myth because Hemingway wrote sober he was like a very diligent hard-working writer who's also a very hard-drinking man but he did his writing sober and it's like oh Jerry Garcia was on heroin when he like wrote for the dead and it's like no he wasn't they wrote really hard they worked really hard I, I am in no position to say whether certain people were, you know, sober, fucked up when, when they did their best art making. Um, but I'm brought back to a conversation I had with two friends of mine early on in sobriety. And I remember this one kid saying, um, who would those people have been had they not been drinking? Had they right. not been doing drugs? What would they have had the potential to create? You know I mean? I think... I think the the part of creativity that is so difficult is that it's so vulnerable, right? And But it's an outlet and holy shit, does it feel good? Because I don't know about you. It's like when I'm writing and I'm in it, it is transcendent yep. because I am not thinking. It is the time in my life where I am genuinely present. It's and a flow I'm, state, like total flow state. 100, 100%. Um, you know, and I think that that's a, I think the hard thing is, is that art in that regard, discipline in that regard um, or create creativity is a discipline in that regard. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, 
that's why I try and be very precious with my process, right? Trying not to judge what it is that I create, but rather to be engaged fully in my process, yeah. right? Am I sitting down every single day and accepting that there are certain days where what I write is crap mm-hmm. and that's okay. Mm-hmm. But you're sitting down to write. That's important. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that I, I feel like my creative life has become so much more full in my sobriety, but I think that's in part because like I've done a lot of hard work in regards to clearing up the crap of my own thinking, you know, like being an alcoholic, like you, you know, we're told all the time. It's like, it's a disease of the mind. It's a disease of the way that you think, you know, I'm a girl who's constantly looking for a back door. Yeah. I want the quick and easy way out. Um, and for a long time was unwilling to recognize and come to terms with the consequences of consistently taking the back door. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think, well, I mean, I resonate with a lot of that because, you know, I, also get that flow state from creativity and from when I'm immersed in a project or, you know, I have a writing project I'm working on right now that I don't really talk about, but um, when I'm in it, I am in it. But the other way I can find that non-thinking flow state is by like drinking. You can get to like the non-thinking place through destruction and not creativity. Right. But there is, I, I would, I guess I would make the argument that it's a profoundly different. Oh yeah. It's a profoundly different state. You know, I think, it's a, you know, you're suppressing yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Right? You're, it's... I'm not advocating for that. that no, totally. Mean. But I mean, I think I think it's definitely a worthwhile thing to like explore. I mean, I think every, I think most people will identify with, I have a couple drinks. It's easier for me to have a conversation. It's easier yeah. for me to engage. There's that feeling. I mean, I definitely know part of the reason that I'm an alcoholic is because, you know, I take a sip of alcohol and I feel a sense of freedom, Mm. right? But I feel a sense of freedom in the immediate sense without realizing that as I continue to drink, as I continue to take drugs, I'm actually tightening the leash on my own life, right? I'm tightening my own collar. I am preventing myself from engaging with um, a different kind of freedom, Yeah. right? I think, I think what I, what I look for now is a sense of serenity, right? I, I, I look for a sense of peace in my life. And when I use drugs and alcohol, I'm not facing my life with courage. I'm not I'm not kind of bravely acknowledging my mistakes and and making a choice to take a step forward. All I'm doing is dampening my fear, dampening my anxiety, turning my back to my own kind of thoughts and feelings about the world yeah. as opposed to challenging them and engaging with them effectively. So you see like cuz I know sobriety is not just about getting sober because you can be a dry drunk and you can be totally. an alcoholic who doesn't drink and be an asshole and a narcissist and emotionally abusive or whatever else. Um I know there's a lot of work that goes into it but you know I'm doing whole 30 right now so I'm not drinking for all of January cuz I'm just cleaning up my diet after the holidays and my head is so fucking clear. It's great. Yeah. Um and kind of I kind of see what you're saying as you've made a contract with life where it's like, I'm going to give up this perceived fun that I had when I was in my partying days for the ability to live life in a courageous, brave, focused, tuned in way and not tuned out necessarily. I think I just came to the realization that I had to face my own crap. Yeah. I had to face the mistakes that I made. I had to face the people I had hurt because I've just found that they were eating me alive from the inside. Mm. You know, my parents used to say, you know, by the time I was, you know, I think probably like 16, they were like, it looks like you're carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders. You know, I was just so all twisted inside and I just didn't want to carry, I just didn't want to carry that 
wait anymore. Like I'm sober because so being sober works for me. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's kind of as simple as that, right? Living a sober lifestyle, you know, living a life of service. Um that to me has offered me a sense of purpose and offered me a sense of fulfillment that was previously absent in my life. Yeah. I didn't I didn't have that. Um and I found that in the process of clearing out my own shit, I was able to get in touch with a creative part of myself that I wasn't able to before. You know, when I was upset, I remember my dad always encouraging me to sit down and write music. And I would say, I can only write when I'm depressed, dad. And I think that that's such a sad thing that it's like, right, that that we can only be creative when we hurt profoundly. Um, You know, as opposed to like when I sit down now, I try and sit down with a sense of curiosity, you know? It's okay to to hurt though. And it's okay to feel, but you need to feel it... um not in a vacuum, but you need to feel it for what it is and not through the lens of, I don't know, inebriation maybe. Yeah. I mean, I think, look, I mean, life hurts sober, drunk. It does. It doesn't matter. I think there's, there's a, there's a pain that is an inevitable part of life. But I think for me, it's a question of how it is that I decide to cope with that. Yeah. You know, I'm a person who likes to take pain to the nth degree. If I feel it a little, I want to dive straight into the black hole and just kind of, Ride, <laughs> roll around, around it, yeah. it yeah and just weep and you know i mean and i think there, there's 100 percent a, a part of me that is still 100 percent a drama queen i mean it's kind of i think part of the reason why <laughs> it's a good career path for me to be, to be in film music right because it, it allows me to engage with different modes of of feeling and you know i think music still is an incredible outlet it's, it is yeah. a privilege to have it as an outlet i i wouldn't suggest for a second that it's like there are moments where i'm in pain or that we shouldn't have creativity as an outlet when we're in pain but to imprison ourselves with the idea that creativity is contingent upon pain well that's a, just another way of escaping realities like oh, i'm so depressed that i can't engage with you know normal life like it's just a it's a you're drunk on depression almost 100 percent. i mean yeah. i think you know it's it's so funny i think there's so many times where it's like i see friends who are hurting and part of me like wants to bring them to an aa meeting um not because i think they're alcoholics but just because it's like i found a solution there um i don't because that's not well that's all the not, work you do in in the 12-step program is can be applied to any life because you don't have to be sober to do it 100 percent. i mean the only time alcohol is brought up in the 12 steps is is in the is in the first step yeah um but you know i think i think what i've realized is that helping myself is really simple but it's yeah. so hard and it's simple, i find i find yeah. even still that like i don't want to pick up the tools you know, I, you well, know, that's been, the path of most resistance where you said you're looking for back doors, whereas you're, you've set down this path where it's like, there are no back doors. It's all about the hard work and picking up the tools and doing the work. And that's hard, you know, it's really hard, but it's, it's the, you get the most reward from it. 100%. And I, and I think that's the hardest thing. I think that's the hardest thing to come to terms with. You know, I mean, I started being medicated for depression by the time I think I was about 14. Um, and you know, I think even then, even though it helped to some degree, I don't think I wanted to take responsibility for myself and my own my own actions. Yeah. Right. Which is, again, to go back to kind of competing with the fantasy version of myself um, versus who I was, like why I had to start patting myself on the back for making my bed. Yeah. That was a really 
important and fundamental step, right? But that becomes all the more difficult, you know, when you're seeing people's highlight reels on social media and you're saying, well, this person is traveling with their gorgeous boyfriend in Bali. Yeah, but how much are they fighting behind the, behind the camera? Right, but it's like we, you know, even though I think we can kind of intellectualize. Why are they always in Bali, by the way? I, every, everybody <laughs> is in Bali. Yeah. It makes me like, well, fuck, I should go to Bali. Um, so I just need a big butt and to go to Bali and I think <laughs> I'm done. set. I then, then I'll be able to start, to start my Instagram career. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think we can all intellectualize that a lot of this stuff is bullshit, right? Yeah. I mean, this is what I noticed. And again, why I can't be on social media. I could talk to you and philosophize all fucking day about how it's bullshit. Mm-hmm. And then when I see it and I'm in it and I'm scrolling. There's that visceral response. My, exactly. The yeah. way I respond emotionally does not match my intellectual understanding of what it is that's going on. Well, I don't think we're, we are psychologically, emotionally, anthropologically in any way prepared to deal with like what we're seeing these days. And I think we're all addicted to the dopamine we get from likes and validation online and, you know we're all addicted to jewels and like like everyone's addicted to everything right now 100 and so like i'm not saying everyone should go to aa but like there's some work to be done in a lot of areas of life for a lot of people i think yeah i mean i think it's super interesting though because then this brings us to the kind of conversation that we're seeing all over the place about mental health yeah um you know part of me wonders though if we kind of over medicalize the conversation you know i think you know, people struggling with clinical depression, you know, with anxiety. I mean, those are very real things. And yeah. it's important that people seek the right kind of professional help for those things. Um, but sometimes. I, sometimes. Yeah, but I, you know, but I. There's a sense of, I think it goes back to your idea of the sense of purpose. Right, exactly. And so I just saw this movie in 1917, which is about <laughs> World War One. It's beautiful. It's all, it looks like one shot. It's just so well done. It's a very tight great narrative and the whole time i'm like who did the music for this this is such a beautiful score and i sat in the credits in the theater and who was it thomas newman it's your dad which i don't mean to blow you up but it's just uh it's such a beautiful movie and the thing that struck me the most about it was the sense of purpose that's given to you through wartime and through imminent threat to your livelihood and you know these these guys have this mission it's like it's just it's literally life or death there's no time for depression there's no time for questioning yourself or worrying about what the guy next to you is wearing or how big is his butt versus my butt and whether he went to bali no and it's like you know we don't have a great depression we don't have a great war it's like that classic fight club quote like our great depression is our lives our great war is a spiritual war you know oh god yeah i mean this this brings up so much i mean i i forget what podcast i was listening to when they were talking about you know the divisiveness that we see in this country and and perhaps that's correlated to the fact that we're not united right we're not we're not united against a common enemy the same way we were doing during you know um world war uh world war one world war two um but yeah that that sense of purpose is a really i i think it's kind of key you know, I don't I don't know if this is valid, but, you know, sometimes I think about, you know, the way that kind of communities used to operate. Right. Mm-hmm. Somebody needed to go and get water. Um, you know, there was the blacksmith that that yeah. there was a mutual dependency you had a role um, within within community. And I think that to some extent I see the abandonment of community. Uh, you see it. I feel like the time that I hear the word community come up most often is when they talk about different Internet communities. Yeah. Um, which I think is, is super interesting. Um and, you know, I think that's one of the things that AA gave me. It was it gave me a sense of purpose in the sense that, you know, like after meetings, I would stay late and I would wash coffee cups. 
that gave me that gave so much to my self-esteem it's insane yeah so much to my self-esteem you know i i hope that war doesn't have to be the thing that offers us a sense of purpose maybe but I, aliens i'm waiting for the aliens right. to come. this would be a great time right shit's gotten pretty weird already like totally you could add <laughs> aliens into the mix and yeah. i don't think it would be all that shocking um but you know what does it mean to feel a part of yeah um i don't I don't see that. And again, I think that's why I so deeply value collaborative relationships because it gives, it offers that sense of purpose. Yeah. That self-transcendence, something that's bigger than you, that you can be a blank canvas for them to paint on, for this larger idea to be expressed on. Right. And I think then also it it offers a sense of meaning, right? If if it's true that, that there is no intrinsic meaning to life, but, but there is the meaning that we, (laughs) sorry, but there is, but there is, but there is meaning to be created. Yeah. Um, I think meaning is so deeply and profoundly tied, um, to having a sense of purpose and, and not an individual sense of purpose, not to say that that should be abandoned, but a more kind of global sense of, of purpose a community you know a, a sense of purpose um you know as it pertains to to community yeah i mean i think finding that purpose outside yourself if you can give it a shot because it feels good like washing coffee cups or like doing some small act of service like like my love language is active service like I, it just feels good to me maybe that's the way i'm wired but i think everyone could benefit from getting outside of their own ego and like stop amazon priming everything stop living in this little bubble of like the information you want to see and the images you want to see and I don't know. But I mean, to give people, though, the benefit of the doubt, you know, I think like looking looking at the culture of comfort in which we live in. Yeah. Right. It is it is so addictive to some extent, or at least in my experience, it is to kind of sit on my ass on my couch and I can stream whatever I want and I can order whatever food that I want. And the necessity for me to engage with the people around me um diminishes it's null, yeah. to a to a to a huge degree right and but I, I think we're wired to engage so the necessity is still there right but but i think then we fall into these behavioral habits yeah right i mean i used to be afraid to walk outside my front door the idea of somebody even saying hello to me it was like i would choke on my own words and and, and i consider myself like pretty you know gregarious i like yeah i i really i really do love engaging with people i love talking with people but to some extent that felt like it was almost too much and i don't think that that experience is intrinsic to who i am as a person but i think it was a learned behavior well i have the same feeling growing up as an only child and being particular about being interrupted and the way things are like i didn't grow up in a village with like 80 kids my age you know so i i used to not be able to introduce myself in class like i was so shy so painfully introverted and i think modeling and auditioning has like really broken that out of me and now i can talk to anyone like we struck up a conversation in yoga and then you worked on my short film and then now we're here so <laughs> we did like, meet in, in yoga a, yeah but like 10 years ago i never in a million years would have had seen that happening or allowed that to happen or put myself out there in that regard and it's and it's so interesting too to kind of be sitting here and having a conversation like this with you and just being like oh we just happened to be at the same yoga class yeah. at the same time and and ended up having a conversation yeah, and i knew you're a composer and then i started directing this short film and i was like hey do you want to work on this i'll pay you and you're like no i'll do it for free and well and you began you built my but you built my website which That's i right. think was such a was such a fun thing of kind of like this bartering element too yeah you know i think i think that's a thing too it's like we live in really desperate times um you know so the you know i i kind of wonder about our capacity for altruism for our capacity for kind of graciousness toward other human beings yeah um you know and i and i think i think about that in regards to music where it's like 
you know, so desperately wanting a, a more kind of cohesive sense of, of a culture of music in Los Angeles, but, you know, also recognizing that it's like, you know, we can only do so much out of, you know, good grace for another human being. Yeah. At the end of the day, there needs to be food on the table. And, and how does this element of kind of desperation play into the way in which we engage with one another as human beings? Well, I th there's a tweet that just went viral that was like, I think our generation has forgotten about hobbies. Like not everything has to be a side hustle. It has to be a you know, sad gig. It doesn't have to be a moneymaker. But it's like, it kind of does these days because all these kids who are living in LA, San Francisco, New York are paying 50% of their income on rent. And like, you don't have the luxury of having time for hobbies or like, let alone something for yourself, let alone something for other people. Like, you don't have the time for that. Right. But you this, have to find it. I mean, this goes back to the conversation about, you know, like commodifying everything. Yeah. You know, whether it's authenticity, relationships, a hobby, everything it feels like needs to be commodified. Yeah. Um, and I and I wonder about what that means to the human experience and to understanding a, a sense of self. Right. Because I, I feel like in a, in a capitalist culture, to some extent, you know, you're looking to please the consumer. Mm -hmm. Right. Because your, you know, financial security and well-being is contingent upon them wanting what it is that you have to yeah, offer. We need endless stock growth. So we got to. Yeah, I mean, you know, even you look at a lot of these like YouTubers who it's like it is the commodification of their life. Oh yeah. Um, and and I and I struggle with really what that means. Like, I would so love to talk to somebody, you know, some of these successful YouTubers, and ask about the experience of the commodification of one's life and what does that mean to their sense of identity and their sense of personhood. Do you do yeah. you no longer have ownership over a sense of self and of of your life and what it is that you value because if it doesn't match the the wants and desires of your fan base, does that make you vulnerable? You know, we as human yeah. beings, it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know? It's like looking at what it is that we need to be okay as human beings. Well, that I mean that's even the YouTubers, you go back to like Hunter S. Thompson, he said like his audience demanded that he be this caricature of himself and he slowly stopped being himself and started being what the audience wanted. And, you know, it led to, he eventually committed suicide. I don't know if that's intertwined with the fact that he lost his sense of self, but I don't think it helped him, you know? I mean, there's so many interesting questions about culture, humanity, philosophy that sometimes I feel like all of us are perhaps secretly hungry for, even if we're unaware of it, that you just kind of don't see being fully represented in in mainstream culture. You know, these, I mean, I think you see stuff about, you know, especially in LA, like, you know, diets and health and well-being. And like, you know, when I was in yeah. New York, <laughs> this, this woman asked my boyfriend and I, you know, to take a picture of her and this other man. And it turns out, you know, he was her spiritual guide and, <laughs> you know, no no judgment on, on that whatsoever. But sometimes I question to what to what extent we're kind of superficially engaging with these really important questions i mean at least we're engaging yeah i mean heavy sigh i, I mean <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i i think to to engage superficially under the guise of saying that it's deep and profound is that perhaps more destructive than not engaging at all the lack of awareness I find like I'm I'm so hungry for conversation and yeah. I find I find that I self-censor when I'm with my peers because it feels like a dangerous political and social landscape to engage with controversial ideas. Well sure, you get get canceled. Right, which is a which is a really interesting 
which is a really, really interesting manifestation of kind of this form of vigilante justice, right? Mm -hmm. Which I, I would argue stems out of something noble, um, but has devolved into something I think highly destructive in society. Well, people want to see other people be destroyed absolutely they want to see people's there's no chance of forgiveness redemption growth change if you had a tweet in 2009 that says this like you are done forever and i think that sort of like that sort of vitriol and that sort of like claws out mentality can only come from a place of purposeful purposelessness in yourself like or a false sense of purpose yeah it's i if you're an actualized person and you're happy and you're you know proud of yourself and how far you've come and the changes you've made you're going to be able to see the potential for that in another person right i mean this brings up a really interesting conversation about forgiveness yeah. um and i was listening to this great podcast i'm blanking on the podcast that it was but it was with another controversial figure this guy douglas murray who mm -hmm. um his most recent book that he came out with was the madness of crowds and then before that um uh, the strange death of europe and, um, you know, he he's also very interested in this concept of forgiveness because he was talking about that forgiveness is contingent upon. All right. Let's see if I get this right. Um, both the person who did the wrong mm -hmm. to ask for forgiveness and the person who was wronged to be open to that forgiveness. Yeah, it's a two-way street. Right, but when you have this vigilante justice, right? Let's say I'm a well-known well, you know, well YouTuber mm -hmm. and I've pissed off my fan base, mm -hmm. but I didn't do a wrong to them. It is a moral wrong that they feel I have done to whoever, whether it's a statement I made to another person or a tweet or whatever. Um, if I apologize to my fans, I didn't hurt them. Yeah. You have to apologize to the person you wronged, right? But then it but it it gets it gets very it gets very complex. It's I mean, this third party like observer effect of right, judgment, and, right? And even if you apologize to that person, it's the questioning of the validity of that of that apology. I mean, it's just God. I mean, but then it's like gets not to keep going back to this, but then you have the commodification of apologies. I mean, you see all these YouTubers coming out with my apology, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know who who knows if they you know all of them have have ad revenue on it. I'm I'm not sure, but I I know that specifically in the the YouTube sphere of influence, it is you know overwhelmed with all of these you know drama filled you know situations. Yeah, um, but it's a but it's a really it's a really interesting thing because I think a lot of a lot of the times people find themselves apologizing. It's unwarranted. You know we have entered. Uh, I'm going to get myself in trouble. We, we've entered into this realm of very kind of radical political correctness. And I think yeah. what it robs us of is the ability to think critically, to dive into ideas that are uncomfortable. Um, but perhaps there's, you know, I would, you know, perhaps argue to these people, maybe it's worthwhile to dive deep into those ideas because if you truly want them debunked, if you truly believe that, you know, these things that are being said, these these terms that, you know, have entered into mainstream language, if you really want those eliminated, shouldn't we really be able to kind of dive deep into some of these uncomfortable conversations to kind of prove from a data-driven, you know, philosophical standpoint of why it is that those things are wrong? Well, people don't want to be challenged. They don't want to be uncomfortable. They live in these bubble-wrapped, you know, personal 
bubbles where it's like everything is what they want to see and what they want to hear. And it's very easy to fall into a track that's of your own creation. And anything outside of that is other and bad and should be put away. Well, right. That's that's exactly the thing, right? We exist in these echo chambers, right? Yeah. But it's also the idea that if if you say something to me that... I disagree with it's not just that I disagree with you it is that you are evil yeah it's bad and You're therefore wrong. I cannot you know I mean you I think the the best example is seeing you know um you know the elimination of conservative speakers on college campuses which is a really scary thing in my opinion um it's not to say that I agree with you know, most of what those conservative speakers have to say but I would rather come to to you know a disagreement from a place of intellectual honesty mm-hmm. and win the argument or engage with a dialectic um, or in a dialectic in a way that's truthful and, and, and meaningful. Yeah. And you have all the evidence presented to you. Then you can genuinely say like, I've heard it all and I still believe what I believe and here's why, as opposed to just repressing anything you think might challenge you. Right. I mean, this goes into the idea um, that, you know, you get it gets into kind of safe spaces, right? And and if you have an idea that I um, disagree with, I am you are traumatizing me. Yeah, you're triggered, right? And you know, Jonathan Haidt talks a lot about this, but the, that's kind of the medicalization of you know this exchange of ideas, right? You can't say you you can't disagree with me because if you do, you invalidate my experience. Yeah. Um, and it's a, and it's a tough thing to navigate. You know, I think at heart I'm a humanist. Like I, I try and, and recognize the humanity in the, in the people around me, regardless of how they may differ from me, whether, you know, in their ideas or their experiences. Um, oh fuck. I just totally lost my train of thought. Um, you're, you're a humanist. You, uh, yeah. You know, I, I, I want, I want. I want people to have self-esteem. I, I want people to see the beauty in, in their existence, but I don't think that that should come at the cost of, of kind of enlightenment values. Well, I mean, I think... Or the abandonment of enlightenment values. No, I agree. I mean, I think discourse and disagreement and discussion are all invaluable things in our lives. And in terms of establishing what you believe in who you are, you have to be challenged. And I think you're such an impressive person because you've done such hard work in living the examined life and living a life that is in line with, you know, your seven year old light and who you need to be to be successful and not, uh, self-sabotaging. So what do you have like advice for a last bit of advice for our listeners in terms of trying to, I, I don't know. I feel like get on the same sort of wavelength you're on. I mean, firstly, I I wouldn't put the wavelength that I'm on on any sort of pedestal. You know, I mean, (sighs) I had to look at the mistakes that I made in the, in, in, you know, face to face. Yeah. Um, You know, there were a lot of times where in my life in the past, I played the victim card and I thought that that justified my cruelty that I showed to other people Mm. because I thought that if I had the label of victim, then I was untouchable. That 
nobody could say what I did was wrong because it came out of this place of, of profound hurt. Yeah. You know, this belief that the world had hurt me and therefore it didn't matter if I hurt the world back because all I was doing was reacting. I found a sense of peace in my life, a sense of serenity in my life by taking responsibility for my actions and not expecting anything in return by going back to people in my life that I had hurt and taking responsibility for my actions after thorough and honest investigation of what those actions really were mm. um, and not expecting an apology in return, even if I felt like they had wronged me too. I think one of the biggest lessons that I've learned is to not lower my own moral standards based on how the people around me act because I don't have control over that, but I do have control over how it is that I choose to act in the world. Um, I think looking at those mistakes allowed me a freedom I didn't think I would ever have. Yeah, I felt so weighted down my whole life. And I remember thinking, if only the world would change, I would be better off. And it turns out that I changed and I feel like I can now work in service of the world from the standpoint of humility. Mm. You know, I think the thing that I try and be very aware of is putting myself on a moral high ground um, because that's a dangerous place for me to be, for me to assume that morally and ethically I know better than somebody else is a dangerous spot for me to be in because then it gives me the right to engage with self-righteous anger. And in anger, I think anger blinds us. Oh yeah. And so if I'm if I'm if I'm both angry and feeling morally superior, I'm a dangerous human being. And I don't want to I don't want to be that human being. Um so, you know, I think for me the one thing that I would say to people if they're struggling and they're going through it, don't be afraid to pat yourself on the back just for making your bed. Start there, lay that brick. Lay the brick and be proud of yourself for it. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to compete with your own potential. Your potential will manifest itself if you lay those bricks Yeah. and you take pride in the way that you lay those bricks, however simple they may be. Um, and to have hope, you know, um, that there are so many different ways to find purpose in the world, you know, take time to explore, to be curious about the world around you, challenge your thoughts, challenge your ideas, you know, be skeptical of who you listen to, you know, remember that but feelings, listen to them. but listen to them. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess, I guess that's, that's what I would have to say. You're talking to you is like watching the Mr. Rogers documentary. I just want to be a better person. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very challenged. I'm triggered. I need a safe space. Um, thank you so much for talking. This is great. Now we can get to work on some music, maybe. Let's do it. All right. Thanks again, Julia. All right. Bye, Michael. Bye, kids. Damn. Is that okay? You're so good.